I'll be reading today from Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, There is a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let us pray. Father, put in my mouth the words you want me to say. For right now and the rest of my life, use me to glorify you. Amen. You may be seated. Um, you know, often when I read parables in the Gospels, I'm, I'm shocked at the density of the receiving party, which is usually the Pharisees. Like, how do you not get this? This seems so simple, yet you struggle with it. Yet, then I run into something like this and realize once again that I am no better than anybody else. Many folks might say that the parable of the dishonest manager is one of the more difficult parables to understand. Because at first blush, it seems as though Jesus is encouraging shady behavior when it comes to other people's money. However, in order to truly understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to isolate Jesus' point of the story from the questionable actions of the account manager. If we get hung up on the idea that the account manager's actions were praised by his Lord and only focus on the action of falsifying the amounts, we will miss the point of the parable. So let's start at the beginning. Many of Jesus' parables are directed at religious rulers of the day, calling them out for their hypocrisy, calling them to feed the poor, uh, etc. This parable, though, is actually directed at the disciples. Now, as we read later in the chapter, the Pharisees are actually eavesdropping, but surely Jesus knows this as well. And Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples that using shrewdness when it comes to wealth should be more important to followers of God than evidently it is at this particular time. So we have this rich man who has put an account manager in charge of his transactions and at least a portion of his wealth. And he learns that this manager of his wealth has been dishonest and is not managing his money well. This guy isn't doing his job. 
And what happens when a person isn't doing a job that you're paying them for? They get fired. Especially if they're swindling you out of your money, and one could easily speculate that this manager was guilty of doing just that. The rich man informs the manager that he will be getting fired. So now we switch over to the manager's perspective. First off, it is important to note that the manager doesn't fight the accusation uh, at all. Uh, clearly, he's guilty as charged because he accepts his fate immediately and he begins to consider what his next move might be. He weighs his options and the future looks bleak. Verse 3, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am too ashamed to beg. So he approaches this situation the only way he knows how, and that's from a human point of view. What can he do about the situation he now finds himself in? Nothing. He can neither dig nor will he allow himself the humility of having to beg, so now he is completely hopeless. Physically, could he dig or beg to survive? I would think that probably he could. But again, that's merely speculation on my part. Either way, he won't stoop to digging or begging, and I suppose that is what truly matters in the story, so we continue. Verse 4 through 7. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe the master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now there's some speculation that based on the practices of the day, this account manager is actually simply writing off his own profit from the bill. In these times, it wasn't uncommon for account managers such as him or tax collectors uh, to add their own cut to a bill in the way of an interest rate or something like that in order to make their own profit. So perhaps he was simply pulling his cut out of the equation and only losing his own money, hypothetically. However, I don't actually believe that to be true. Why? Because the text in Luke literally says that it isn't. The account manager doesn't ask, how much do you owe me? He asks, how much do you owe my master? And so there's no reason for us to doubt that the account manager is doing exactly what we assumed he was doing at first blush, squandering his master's wealth. This leads us to the master's response, and it's a surprising one. The master commends his manager's final action before termination. Verse 8 says this, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And let's try to understand the word shrewd in this context. Shrewd in our translations comes from the Greek word phronimus, which when used as an adverb means sensible, thoughtful, prudent, or wise. So by saying this manager was shrewd, the master is, of the story is really saying that he was prudently wise or something to that effect, which shrewd has negative connotations in my mind, but here this is a compliment. In which case, what are we doing here? 
If you're like me, you fully expect the master to condemn this account manager right here. Maybe say something like, you wicked servant, as the master did in Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. But instead he pats him on the back and says that he did well. The dude just squandered your money. How could you commend him for that? You see, this is the point where commentaries and scholars see things differently. Some would say that the master interprets the manager's move as an act of banking on the master's grace and forgiveness. This is actually a very Lutheran point of view. That since the manager reasoned that he had no ability to pull himself out of the situation he was in, he only had one move left on the table, and that was to rely on the prospective grace and forgiveness of the master. The problem with that theory is this. The text doesn't say it. We are required to speculate in order to reach that conclusion, and if we believe that the scriptures are the word of God, speculation using our own earthly brain is a risky move. So if we don't want to speculate and would rather simply pull answers from the text itself, which should be our agenda every time, by the way, uh, let's keep reading. Verse 9 says this, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And there is our answer. Our issue is perhaps looking at this steward or account manager as a good guy. Because in reality, he's not. He's just shrewd. You see, it's easy for us, given the way other parables have played out, to assume that the steward was going to end up like the people of the light mentioned in verse 9. But that isn't what Jesus is saying. Uh, to quote Matthias Zabodi, who had a good fortune of watching live as he made this breakthrough in Dr. Berge's New Testament history class, he said this, So maybe the steward is the people of this world. And maybe that's why he, Jesus, made him dishonest. Like, he's not a good guy, but he's really smart. How cool would it be if us good guys were also smart? You see, Jesus isn't telling us to use other people's money unwisely to gain friends, nor does it have an even more convoluted meaning than that. He is simply telling his disciples that even the people of this world who are bad utilize their money in a way that pleases other people. Maybe as the people of this world who are quote-unquote good should be doing the same. We read on, verses 10 through 11. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in this unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to you the true riches? Here in verse 11, Jesus is again referencing the dishonesty of the manager. And again, we see, as we see commonly in Luke's gospel, we see a reference to true riches which is the kingdom of heaven. And he contrasts true riches, the kingdom of heaven, with unrighteous wealth, which is money. If you have not been faithful with your money, how can you be trusted with true eternal riches? Then Jesus reminds us of where our money comes from in the first place in verses 12 and 13. And if you have not been faithful in which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? 
No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, is not everything we have a blessing from God? What have we done to deserve these things? Nothing. It is by God's blessing alone that we have what we have, and that is truly important for us to remember. No servant can serve two masters. We cannot be committed to both God and money. This was certainly a reminder to the disciples whom Jesus was with, but a pretty pointed statement that could have been directed at the Pharisees who were eavesdropping as well. They were notorious for losing sight of God in an effort to gain worldly wealth, and if you continue reading chapter 16, they get pretty upset by Jesus' words. But this is a theme in Luke's gospel. Money can be dangerous if used incorrectly, and the warning holds true for us today. Folks, it is December 1st, 2019, and we have entered into one of the most interesting times of the year. All you need to do is open a newspaper, and you will find millions of fancy ways to spend your money. On Thanksgiving Day, I had a look at Amazon deals. I guess I couldn't wait until Friday. And I purchased for myself a pair of glasses. That doesn't really seem that bad until I let you know that I have 20-20 vision and these glasses I bought don't enhance my vision whatsoever. I will be able to see exactly as well with them as I will without them. But I paid like $13 for them. Why? If you happen to venture into Home Depot as the doors opened at 6 a.m. on Friday, you would have seen my lanky figure dodging shopping carts, having found myself in the dangerous position of being between 99-cent poinsettias and a horde of caffeinated customers. I have a bruise on my ankle from one lady who rushed to the racks of flowers, loaded up her cart with no fewer than 24 of the potted plants, and turned around and bashed her way to the checkout. This kind of thing really frustrates me. For the last few years, I have been what many consider a Scrooge during the Christmas season. I can't find a way to get into that Christmas spirit. I really don't like receiving gifts. I get caught up with all the stuff that people think they need to buy, and it simply takes all the joy out of a truly wonderful time of year, at least for me. This year, I'm trying out a new perspective. It is my responsibility to cut through the outside noise, the advertisements, the stuff, and focus on what Jesus says is important. Being shrewd with my money, making friends with it, and more importantly, honoring him with it. Obviously, this isn't to say buying friendship with gifts is a good idea. I don't believe that Jesus would suggest buying a boat for a guy so that maybe he takes you fishing once in a while. Rather, using the gifts God has given us to help those around us. I may never end up being the king of Christmas decoration. I won't be the one who decorates before Thanksgiving. I won't have like nine Christmas trees in my house. And I won't watch Jim Carrey's version of The Grinch every week. And I might not even watch it all year. No offense, by the way, to any of those who uh, do these things. It just isn't for me. Um, and in my humble opinion, that movie is grossly overrated. 
But people of Maple Park, hear me now. I don't pretend to know your individual financial situation. And I'm sure that there's struggling going on and I don't want to make light of that, or worse yet, pretend that it doesn't exist. But I'm here to tell you that collectively we are better off than 99% of this world. And here in Luke 16, Jesus is calling his disciples to be shrewd or wise with their money. To use the money that they have to make friends in this world because even the unchurched people have managed to do that. You see, money is an inanimate object. It is neither good nor evil. But it does have a tendency, when paired with our sinful nature, to corrupt. In a sermon, a pastor named David Holloway suggests that money should have a poison label attached to it. He compared it to weed killer. Though weed killer is poisonous when used exclusively, it does have a purpose when used correctly. Money, when idolized, blots out our ability to serve God, but used correctly can be a tool to do so. So I challenge you this Christmas season. There's plenty of crap out there you can spend your money on. There's the newest vacuuming robot, a second computer monitor, another talking speaker in your home so that the government can monitor your every move. <laughs> and then there's always a pair of glasses you probably don't need. But instead, maybe we take a look around us in our community. Even here at the community at Maple Park, as Sandy pointed out. Here in Luke 16, Jesus is calling us to use our money to make friends and maybe, just maybe, to lead them towards him. There's plenty of need in this world and even in our community and perhaps next time you find yourself flipping through ads, think about how you could use the wealth that God has blessed you with to serve others. After all, if those without the Lord are capable, shouldn't we be even more? Let us pray. Lord, as Jesus warned the Pharisees, we have a tendency to justify ourselves before men. But you, Lord, know our hearts. May we strive to please you this Christmas season and forevermore with our wealth and with our being. Amen.